This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Finishing the Climb," was recorded at Wellspring Church on May 5, 2019. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 31. We will be reading the entire chapter、uh, of Nehemiah 13 together this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of all the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work. Had fled each to his field, so I confronted the officials and said, "Why is the house of God forsaken?" And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought them the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Pedaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God, and for His service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them. On the day when they sold food, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, "What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city?" Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them. Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath.、And、then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first, first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we are on the last chapter of Nehemiah. And the question for you is that if you were to be Nehemiah and write your account of everything that happened in Nehemiah's time, would you end Nehemiah with this chapter? This is a very odd chapter to end with. And it reminds me of the number of times I've had the opportunity to go hiking, especially on a mountain. I remember hiking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and it's an incredibly beautiful mountain range. You make this first climb up the mountain, and it's quite a long distance. But as you're walking the path, and there's this huge bed of trees, and you're walking through, and you see the pinnacle, the peak, the summit, and you think, praise God, it's been such a difficult climb. And you, you get through the, the foliage, and you see the pinnacle, and you get to that top, until you realize that it's actually just an outcropping. It's a, a, a fold in the terrain. And actually, the summit is much further along. And you get to that place and you think, I don't think I could do this anymore. I want to give up. And I do think that when I read Nehemiah and explore, and as we've been exploring together, all the difficulties that he and the people of Israel have faced you wonder, how do you finish this climb? How do you make it through to the end? Especially when there are some insurmountable-looking obstacles along the way. I don't think those obstacles are just for Nehemiah, but in every way, these are the obstacles that we all face in this journey of faith. And it's hard to finish the race. It's hard to finish this climb. Unless you first understand the obstacles themselves, and then secondly is to recognize the power upon which we're able to overcome these obstacles. So in this chapter, in this final chapter of Nehemiah, I see four particular obstacles. 
First are moments, and I'll explain that. The second is pragmatism. The third is unbelief. And the fourth is conformity. So let's look at these obstacles. First is moments. It doesn't seem like much of an obstacle, moments. And in fact, J.I. Packer describes them, theologian J.I. Packer, he describes them as mountaintop moments. Times that you remember and relish spiritually because of its significance and importance in your life. And again, most of us don't think of those times as obstacles to finishing the climb. We actually tend to think that those moments are critical points to our climb, and they are on, in one respect, but also if not looked upon with the right perspective, they can be an incredible hindrance to our finishing this task. The book of Nehemiah seems to have many significant moments of faith. Um, dramatic moments. They, against all odds, completed the wall in 52 days. That's a, that's a wondrous, significant moment. Remember the scene where the people of Israel are standing and scripture is being read and they're weeping. That's a, a momentous occasion of faith, it seems like. In chapter 12, we talked about it last time, that Nehemiah sets apart two distinct grand choirs to sing on the opposite sides of the wall to dedicate that wall to God. It was glorious. If there's any moment that stands out as that is the pinnacle, the summit of everything, surely chapter 12 would be that pinnacle. So the real question is, how do you get from those moments to chapter 13? Why doesn't it end with chapter 12 where the choirs are singing hallelujah, the work is done, everything is finished. You would think that if I was the Bible writer, I would end it with chapter 12 and get rid of this whole bad chapter of 13. A lot of problems again. Because I do think that the point and the problem of these mountaintop moments is that they are exactly that, moments. And moments do not last. There are many grand moments in the Bible. I mean, if there was, if we could just catalog right now for you all the different moments, grand, magnificent, miraculous moments, there'd be plenty. It's interesting because I didn't actually share exactly what I was going to speak on to Eddie, who was leading worship, and he picked a song called The Song of Moses, and that's an illustration I want to bring to you. That is God's providence moving. But here's a grand moment in the Bible. Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. You know, that song that we sang, at least the chorus part where God is a warrior, he's the, the horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. That's written by Moses and Miriam right after the Israelites had passed on dry ground, the Red Sea. And we all have that image of whether Charlton Heston or whatever it might be, the image of the waters parted to the side and over a at least a half a million to a million people are crossing that sea while the Egyptians pursue in their chariots and suddenly the waters fold back and destroy the Egyptians. So right after that grand event, that song that we sang was written in response. And in that desert, at that moment, were, were shouts of joy and song and celebration. People were dancing in the sand. 
I mean, they were ecstatic because they saw this tremendous miracle. Remember, you have to understand that the people of Israel were enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt, crying out to God, have mercy, O God, send deliverance. And God does. And he does so dramatically and celebration. Now, let me ask you, how long do you think it would take for the people of Israel to forget that magnificent moment? 20 years, 10 years, five years. We all think that if, if I just experience a miracle in my life, I will never forget you, God. You will always be at the forefront of my heart and mind forever. The Israelites forgot. Let's see how quickly. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So how long was it? Not 10 years, not five years, three days. Three days after this dramatic miracle of faith. I do think many of us have this mentality. We think, God, if you should only answer my prayer, I promise you, I will never forget you. I'll commit my family to you. I'll give all the money that I have, everything I have. You know, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. No, an experience in and of itself will not change you. Not a, a moment. And so if we're looking for a miracle or if a super preacher came and preached, someone who was famous really preached, or if I went to a revival meeting or a retreat, we're looking for experiences. Someone to knock your socks off, to make you even weep and wail. But weeping and wailing even falls short. When we look for those experiences, we will be sorely disappointed. Think of the disciples. They lived and breathed and maybe joked and laughed with Jesus for three years. How many miracles did they see? I am nonstop. They heard the best teaching that has ever been spoken in the world's history. And even after walking with him and seeing all that for three years, by the end of those three years, they all abandoned him. And lest we become too cocky about ourselves, we think that, well, I wouldn't do that. I don't know. I don't. I know my personal record of following Jesus. I don't know if he was personally there, if I would have committed my life to him just sheerly on the basis of miracles. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, refused to believe Jesus until he touched his hands in his side and touched the holes in his hands. And Jesus said in John twenty twenty nine. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The obstacle, one grave and great obstacle of faith are the moments when we believe that I just need a moment, a magical, mysterious moment. I mean, think about it for us all. It's not just spiritually speaking. You can be planning a grand vacation. Um, you could be hoping and prepare for that moment where you finally can buy your first new house. And you walk in and it's spectacular. Until 
the next house you want is better than your first one. Remember the moment where your first child was born. That, that moment you're in that room where labor is done and you're holding the baby. That baby is great in that moment until they're two years old saying, gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give I want, I want, I want. The, there are moments that are spectacular in our lives, but they always fade and place our hope in those mountaintop moments. We will not be able to finish the climb. The second obstacle is pragmatism. It's in verses four through eight. And in verses four through eight, we see this really odd story. Eliashib is the high priest and Nehemiah has left him in charge of the storerooms in verse four. And Nehemiah is sent, called back to, back to Persia by King Artaxerxes. And it's probable that he's gone anywhere from 12 to 20 years. So quite a long time. For whatever reason, he was a governor. He had to respond to powers that be. And for him, it meant going back and being with the Persian Empire for a while. And so as he's gone, Eliashib decides for whatever reason, to allow Tobiah to have a, a nice, cool little pad in the temple somewhere. So he brings in all of his furniture and sort of parks himself in this holy of holy place, God's temple. Clearly, this temple was not rebuilt so that Tobiah, if you can recall, was one of the three main enemies of Nehemiah and the people of Israel from rebuilding the temple and the wall. How does this happen? First of all, we know that Eliashib is somehow a relative of Tobiah, as well as Tobiah was an influential man who had resources and money. We don't know exactly, but you can sort of imagine maybe it was compromises here and there. Well, it's just for a night. He needs space. Or, you know, he act, he's giving more money now to the, the temple, so we should let him. He, he, he deserves a place to stay. The influence of Tobiah was significant due to his position, his money, his resources. And so Eliashib with Tobiah make this scheme and plan to undermine temple worship. And in it, you get the sense of the pragmatism and the compromises and the practicalities that are made along the way. That this, rather than thinking about the principle they're focusing on what makes sense in their own mind, regardless of what God thinks. One thing we know is that when you start making judgments and assessments and evaluations and decisions based solely on personal pragmatism and comfort and success, that is a dark road to a place of trust and hope and faith in God. And what happens then is that your whole life becomes completely, utterly dependent on only what you see and your joy and your satisfaction becomes linked to that so that only that which is external satisfies you. There's nothing internal and ultimately not trusting in God, but rather it's if my job situation changes, then everything will be okay. If I only gain entrance into this group of friends and suddenly life will be better for me. I really love the, the life and testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata, the, 
um, paraplegic author whose faith and trust in Christ far exceeds the station that she's in. And she tells this story, and I want to read it to you, of one time where she was at a, a Christian women's conference speaking, and she was in the restroom, and as she's there, because she's in the wheelchair, all these women know who she is, so they surround her in the restroom and start talking to her. And one woman, putting on lipstick, said, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. <laughs> what a statement, huh? I wish that I had your joy. And several women around her nodded. How do you do it? I don't do it, I said. That raised their eyebrows. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? Several women leaned against the counter to listen. This is an average day. I breathed deeply. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, Oh, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day. But you do. May I have yours? God, I need you desperately. And they were curious to know more. So what happens when your friend comes through the bedroom door? One of them asked. I turn my head toward her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine, it's God's. And so, I said, gesturing to my paralyzed legs, whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. Whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. That is joy. Joy is hard won as soon as you wake up in the morning. It's not when things are better for me with my health, when I get more money, when people like me more, when I'm able, able to finally go away and get some rest on vacation, when my kids don't complain as much, when I finally get married. See, that's the problem, and it's the same problem that we see in chapter uh, 13, verses 4 through 8, is that Eliashib had this perspective that, for whatever reason, Tobiah would bring to him a sense of peace, a sense of comfort comfort and security. And Nehemiah's whole point in the whole book of Nehemiah is, the temple was destroyed because you believe something outside of God satisfies you. And so when Johnny Erickson Tata is saying, joy is hard won in the morning, it's to say that you get that joy from what Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that comes not when you face different experiences and circumstances and people in your life that are really good to you or, wow, you've got great news. And so today I'm more joyous than I was yesterday when I was struggling and when it was, when the milk was spilt and someone didn't listen to what I said and people were grouchy and angry around me. Joy is not won or lost on the experiences and the circumstances. Joy is won because it is the Lord who gives you that joy. That is your strength. And you get that when you decide in the morning, I will have joy. I will. And then no matter what happens that day, it can, that will, joy will not be gone from you because he is the one who gives it to you, not the people around you. 
that person is able to finish the climb. But apart from that, we get sucked into pragmatism. Thirdly, unbelief in verses 10 through 22. There's a problem, a sort of a dual-headed problem in verses 10 through 22 in this scenario. The whole system of worship for the Israelites was founded on the idea that God does not need the temple, but he, he is symbolically represented as the temple being his dwelling place. So the Israelites, when they built the temple, it was to say, God is there. He's not physically there, but he is represented to be there and he has chosen to say, this is my home. I'm going to be with you through eternity as long as you trust in me. But part of that system was to recognize that there needed to be people upkeeping that temple. And those people were the Levites and the priests. And what God had decided is that the people of Israel were going to tithe, give a tenth, at least at minimum of what they earned, not because God needed it, but what God did is he wanted to ensure that everyone would place him above personal security that their effort and work provided for themselves. And so the tenth, the tithe, was meant to be a symbol of their trust in God. And God, ingeniously, as only God does, sort of incorporates all of that as a representation of everyone's heart to say, I trust you, God. But the system required every single part to move in accordance. So the people of Israel provided that tenth. That tenth supported the Levites and the, and the musicians and the priest to actually do the work of giving worship to God and allowing the sacrificial system to take place. If the people decided not to give that tenth, then those, Israel, uh, those Levites, guess what they would have to do? They'd have to get a job. We all probably think that way. Well, uh, you need a real job to really experience life. And so maybe they thought, we want the Levites to have a real job, whatever it might be. But what the Levites did is they started going to their fields and the priests started working in their fields. And so no one upkept the temple. No one was there to do the sacrifices. And then the people couldn't bring their sacrifices. So they said, ah, I'll just keep it for myself. You see how it all sort of connected together when one heart just decides, I don't need this. I want it for myself. It just sort of filters. It becomes a chain reaction. And so when Nehemiah returns in verse 10, it says the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They all had families. They needed to take care of their families. So they went to the field to till the grass and um, plant the seed and do what they needed to do. And then what happened then is God was completely neglected. The temple, it's not just the building but it was that the worship of God became lessened. It was all connected together. Another part of this problem then, keep that in mind, is verses 15 through 22. It's the neglect of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, that seventh day, was again another reminder for the people of Israel. When God created all things on six days, but on the seventh he rests, he didn't rest because... He was exhausted and tired thinking, oh, I'm just wiped out. I need some, I need a break. It's not why God rested. It was to symbolize the idea that 
the people of Israel, his people would for the future decide, I'm going to trust in God in my days. In the same way you give your money as a tithe, as a representation of your heart, the day set apart was the same thing, not just this time of money, but of time. And that time was to say, I trust you, God, even with my time, so that when I don't work on this seventh day, I will trust that you'll provide everything. Both systems were in place by God to his people to say, I am your provider. I'm the one who's going to give you time. I have numbered the days for your days. In my hand, I know how long you're going to live. And I know how much money you need to not only survive, but to be satisfied. I'm going to give you perfectly the right amount. And I need you to trust me. And so these two ways were means by which the people of Israel were to trust God with their life. And to say, God, you have everything mapped out. I believe in you. I trust in you. So when the Israelites refused to pay their tithes and refused and rejected the Sabbath, what they were saying is, I don't believe you, God. I don't trust you. I don't believe you have my best in store. And so once they let that go, it's exactly what happened previously as to why the temple was destroyed in the first place. Do you see how quickly this says a lot again about the mountaintop moments? You can do tremendous things for God, but it doesn't last that long. It actually fades away relatively quickly. If you can imagine, they had just built the wall and restored the the temple and everything. Nehemiah goes away and already in one generation, it's pretty much almost gone. Wow. So quick. The fourth obstacle is conformity in verses 23 through 31. Verses 23 through 31 are difficult for us as modern readers because what is, what is uh, Nehemiah saying? Is it, is this, Does God against interracial marriage or uh, international marriage? And I don't think that's the case simply because the rest of Scripture just does not bear that out. And there are so many passages. I give you one very quick passage. Moses married Zipporah. Zipporah was not only a Midianite, but most think that he was, she was probably African coming from maybe central to southern Africa. And I've been to central and southern Africa. I haven't yet met someone who was olive-skinned. Generally, they tend to be darker-skinned. And so Miriam, who was Moses' sister, actually criticizes this marriage. And if you, anyone know, if you've read the Action Bible, you might know the answer to this. But what happens is that Miriam is covered with leprosy. God actually judges Miriam for his his real, you know, just her real rejection of this marriage. And there are many instances in the Bible where we see that there is a a blessing and and the realities, especially in Acts 2, of the union of different races coming together, ultimately in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But this story is not about interracial marriage in and of itself, but rather we see it in verse 26, what it's about. At the core, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. The grave error of these marriages was that when Israel intermarried, they were marrying not just the the family. And so you've heard the expression where if you marry someone, you don't just marry that woman or that man. You marry into their family. You marry their whole family. But in Israel's day, you didn't just marry the whole family. You also married their gods. So it wasn't just about the marriage, but it was the implications of the marriage religiously. And in this instance, it was the idea that when you married someone, you married your God, Yahweh. I worship Yahweh and I'm a Jew and I marry a Midianite or an Amorite. And now I have to marry also, I'm a, I bring into my sort of sphere, my pantheon of gods. I bring in Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech. And suddenly I have all these other gods. Yahweh is still my God, but I also, just in case if Yahweh doesn't really work out, I'll also give offering to Molech. And I'll also give offering to Ashtaroth. And so what happens through that process is that the watering down of my worship of God continues. And the next generation... The worship of God is completely gone. That happens historically. We see it all throughout the Bible. And it happens even in our day. It is virtually impossible to have a, an instance where you have a person coming into a family and trying the best that you can to hold on to your faith in God and have the other person hold on to their faith in their God and believe that the next generation is going to still trust and follow God. It just does not happen. And just in case, if we think that it can, Nehemiah brings into the discussion Solomon, who was supposed to be the wisest of all kings. But we all know what happened to Solomon. If Solomon couldn't even make this happen, then how in the world could these Israelites in Nehemiah's story ever make a people, a generation still trusting God. Conformity, and that's ultimately what it boils down to, is the desire to be just like everyone else. I mean, that really is our greatest temptation, isn't it, in this world? It's one of them, is to say, I just want to look and act and be like everyone else. Um, I was having a discussion with a few of the guys and we were talking about, and it was actually Chad, Scott Tinloy, my son Jack, and myself. We were at, after doing a little demo, we were, went to uh, eat and I asked them the question, so what would you tell your 14 year old self? Now, obviously I didn't tell, ask Jack that question because he's four, he's about 14 years old. So in any, every way, it was sort of my little way to, talk to Jack without me talking to Jack. <laughs> and each one of us essentially said the same thing. It was not to think too much, not to care too much of what other people think. Imagine if you as a 14-year-old could get that deeply into your soul. And for me, it was to understand that your identity in Christ is far greater than anything else that people else and whatever anyone can say. If you can grasp that as a 14-year-old, you will be a wise boy or girl, teenager. 
But if you could grasp that as a 50-year-old, you will be wise. You will be. Because our hearts are prone to conformity. I want to be just like everyone else. I want to just be able to stand and do exactly what everyone else thinks. And I don't want to stand out. I want, I want to be different. I want to look like the, everyone. And that's the problem of what happened in this process of marrying. Because actually that was what was happening in this land, in this culture. Is that everyone was just marrying anyone. It didn't matter who worshipped whom. Because of that, the marriage was more important than the worship of God. So those are the four obstacles. And those four obstacles keep us from finishing this climb. You can see how in this journey of faith, in this walk of life, that if we are bearing these and facing these obstacles, how it prevents us from following and trusting God. And I can honestly say that every one of these four things, I personally have fallen to each one of them. Now, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with when we go through, and this is one of the blessings of expository preaching, going through a text, is you hit chapter 13 of Nehemiah, and if I were to end there, I would say, boy, that's a real downer. The Bible oftentimes ends with downers on the end of each chapter of every book. A lot of them ends like this, and you sort of think, what hope is there? But this is where biblical theology comes into play. That is to say that we believe Nehemiah is one book of 66 books that tells one story. And you have to always keep that in mind when you're reading the Bible. Is You don't just read Nehemiah and just end there and say, oh man, this, this is terrible. But you say, what does this say in the whole? You know, chronologically, Nehemiah shifts over to Esther. And Esther tells the story of the Persian Empire... And the Jews are virtually almost wiped out except for God's intervention, sovereignly. And they are saved. And if you know anything about the story of Esther, it goes on. After that, really it moves on to what's known as the intertestamental period of the Bible, of biblical history. Meaning right after Esther, there's almost nothing said, nothing done chronologically about God for about three to four hundred years. So it's a period of silence. So if you were to take, if you were to look at the Bible and you go through to Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament, that's not actually chronologically the end of the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament is essentially the time period is Esther. We're almost at the end of the time of the Old Testament. So three to four hundred years silence. And then guess what begins? The Gospel of Matthew. The ba a baby is born. There's a genealogy, a story. In it is people who are told of in the Persian Empire. And then a baby is born. And that baby, his very life is threatened. And many of us know this story. That baby would become a man and this man would have no place to lay his head. In fact, he was constantly threatened by religious elites who were so angry because he did not conform to the ways of this world and to their patterns of religiosity. The thing about Jesus is that he was surrounded by the same obstacles. 
Think of his disciples. They actually went to the mountaintop with him. Three of them did on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw this dramatic miracle of Jesus next to Moses and Elijah. And Peter, as he always does, sticks his big foot in his mouth and says, "Uh, Jesus, you want me to uh, build you a a booth, each one of you? Because you need to stay there. He's just so lost. He doesn't get it. There are so many moments like that to the very end of his days. They even saw him go up on a cloud in the sky and they still standing there. And the angel says, don't just stand there. Go, go, go out. They're just struck. They couldn't get it. Jesus' whole life is surrounded with people like this, looking for those moments, trying to say, you should be king. You should be the one who overthrows everything. Pragmatism. His disciples are so pragmatic that, and they're constantly trying to, again, get Jesus to be king. Because in their mind, they think, if Jesus just has earthly power, everything will be made right for the Jews. We, he should be the earthly king. And even to the point where Jesus is arrested, what does he do? Peter, he takes out a sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus. And Jesus comes and touches the ear and heals it and says, put away your sword. That's not how my kingdom is going to come. They just could not get out of this vision of what do we need to do to make things right? How do I get my own salvation? I need to do something because that's the only way things are going to be better for my life. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. Unbelief. Remember Peter again, walking on water? He's, well, he gets on the water, but slowly he's, Help, Lord, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. They tried to cast out demons by themselves. Couldn't do it. They just didn't have the faith. They didn't really believe who Jesus said he was. And then conformity. Remember the story of the disciples? They were so upset because other people were casting out demons in Jesus' name. They were always fighting to be great amongst themselves because they needed to prove they were better. They were thinking the way everyone else thought in this world. And Jesus' whole point about being great is, if you try to think the way Gentiles do, you'll never make it. You'll never understand. But one thing we know, what is the answer? How do you overcome? The way we overcome is to see what Jesus did. There's one thing that Jesus did, is that he continued the climb. He never stopped climbing on the road of Golgotha, on Calvary. You know, he climbed a mountain too with a heavy cross. Every obstacle that Satan, even his own disciples, tried to put along the way, he didn't stop. Even when everyone said, if you're really the Savior, if you're really God, come down from that cross. Think of how many times people tried to say, if you just do this, change your circumstances, then you can really be safe and happy, not go through suffering. But he didn't stop. He kept on climbing again and again, even after falling, even after it was so difficult, even after crying out to the Father and saying, Father, remove this cup from me. Even that didn't stop him. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus went to bear our sins on a tree.
to bear our burdens, to bear the weight of every obstacle. And he did not give up, even to the point of forsakenness. This is the story of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is that despite all of the blessings and all the victories, it still fell short. This is our story. This is our climb. The climb that Jesus made for us. And all we have is to not to try to go out there and do it ourselves, but to say, oh Lord, you're my joy. You're my comfort. You're my strength. The joy of the Lord is in him. He's our strength. And it doesn't take for us to go outside and do something about it. It's instead to receive all that God has done to understand the freedom that we have in him. And that means that we can go out, we can do tremendous things for him. But we need to believe he is our story. He's won the victory. He's climbed that climb for us. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. Your love is never failing. You are the warrior God who fights our battles. But you didn't do that so that we could trust in the moment or believe that there's some spectacular vision and in and of itself that's what saves us or keeps us going. No, instead, you sent your son. He gave his life. He gave his life so that we who could never repay this insurmountable debt that we owe. He paid that debt for us. And what you ask us to do is to believe. So Lord, we come to you. And I pray, Father, that men, women, students, children in this room would believe that you have done the work for us. You make our burden light. I pray that there would be many in this room every morning who would fight hard for joy. It wouldn't be because they've experienced good things throughout the day, but it's because you have already fought that hard work so that we can experience that joy, regardless of what we face. We praise you. I ask, oh God, that as we come to this table, that we would come with a heart that is rejoicing, that is astounded by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.